You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Uh, welcome, Sophia viewers. I'm here uh, with uh, someone who I think everybody probably knows pretty well, uh, Robert Wright. <laughs> and um, do we need to do introductions, Robert? Or are we such stars by this point that we don't need... We well, need to... uh, we're <laughs> maybe big fish in this small pond. <laughs> you were exaggerating when you said that everyone knows who I am. Because actually, well, you have there, are people, there are people in Papua New Guinea... <laughs> who don't watch. So your your books have not yet been translated into whatever language they speak in, in New Guinea, I guess. Apparently. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, I actually run Meaning of Life TV, and for that matter, Blogging Heads TV, most relevantly, perhaps. And, of course, you're the author of some major uh, New York Times bestselling books like Non-Zero, The Evolution of God. Am I missing... Uh, the Moral Animal was not a bestseller, but as long as we're plugging books, <laughs> I skip it. Uh, yeah. So anyway, thank you for, for having me on. This is an unusual feeling that I'm not, it isn't the right show, which I'm, which is usually what it is when I'm showing up here. It's Sophia, your show. That's right. That's right. And, um, I'm Dan Kaufman, of course, professor of philosophy at Missouri State. I have not published any books, but I've published lots of articles. Uh, and I also run an online magazine called uh, The Electric Agora. Um, Bob, Bob liked the, uh, the Kant dialogue that we did, that I did with David Ottlinger, mm -hmm. and thought it might not be a bad idea to have um, some sort of occasional dialogues where we just simply explore a single philosopher's thought. Um, and um, Bob also thought that it would be a good idea maybe – uh, if, if he if he might uh, talk to me about about a particular philosopher, and in this case, I guess we're going to talk about uh, you wanted to talk about David Hume, and so even though I am sort of the host, I think I think the way the best way to do this, Bob, is maybe to have you start asking me things, and then I guess a, a conversation will naturally emerge out of that. Right. Uh, yeah. My job is to be naive interlocutor and ask the kinds of uh, questions a lay person would ask. In the case of Hume. I can't totally fulfill that role because I actually know a little about him and have some views about him. But uh, down the road, I hope we'll have a chance to do another couple of these uh, where we focus maybe on some philosophers whom I know even even less about. Uh, but in any event, you know quite a bit about Hume, I think. I do. So, I do. so, yeah, let me ask. Uh, first of all, let's ask with the kind of, you know, the Cliff's Notes uh, version. Do they still have Cliff's Notes? Is that a dated reference? I think it's still an online phenomenon, right? Yeah, I think they still do because my wife every now and then will complain about students uh, copying yeah. things from them. A perennial <laughs> problem. Although she, she, she usually complains about Sparks Notes. I, I haven't heard. Yeah, Cliff's those are slightly newer. There were also Monarch Notes back in the day. I'm not sure they're around at all. I but, those, yeah. but, but anyway, I mean... Uh, the basic, you know, if someone wanted to pretend to have a deep knowledge of Hume while having, in fact, the superficial knowledge of Hume, uh, this is where the Cliff Notes uh, reference comes in. So if they're at a dinner party and somebody mentioned Hume and they just wanted to say one thing to signify their knowledge of Hume, whether they actually had any or not, I assume what they would say is, ah, Hume, British empiricist. Yeah. That's the most general is is that the most general designation of his significance? It is. Of course, as is always the case with philosophy, the minute you say that there's twenty problems. Right. Um uh it's is this is actually sort of interesting and worth saying. I mean, there is a kind of a textbook history version of the Enlightenment, which breaks the Enlightenment up into two traditions, the empiricist tradition and the rationalist tradition, the empiricist consisting of John Locke Bishop Barclay and David Hume, the rationalist consisting of uh, Leibniz, Spinoza, and Descartes, mm -hmm. with Kant representing a sort of grand synthesis at the end. And I think that this that this picture is almost entirely misleading. Um, okay, but before we debunk it, can we flesh it out a little, like by empiricist? Sure. I mean, first of all, it, it seems to me in philosophy, empirical or empiricism is used in two maybe related senses. On the one hand, it, it seems to be a theory of how we come to have knowledge in our brain. We come to have knowledge in our brain through interaction with, through experience with the environment. That's Locke. You start off with a blank slate, a tabula rasa. Right. So That's he's right. an empiric, it's an, empiri an empiricist theory of, of knowledge. Right. Uh, but then somewhat separate from that, I think, and I, and I believe this is 
a little more what Hume is about is an insistence as a methodological matter, kind of, in philosophy that we be, like, very clear about our claims and test them against experience. In other words, find evidence for them. It's a, there's a real emphasis on not just gathering evidence, but on the value of making the kinds of claims that are amenable to yeah. testing through evidence. Yeah, I mean, Hume is certainly a more consistent empiricist than Locke. I mean, Locke, there's all sorts of things in Locke's, in Locke's epistemology that are not empirically verifiable that he never really sort of, you know, explains uh, how we know them. Um, I would say, however, that if you want to, if you, if you want to know who the purest empiricists of the three are, it's Barclay. Um, because Most Barclay, extreme. Right, because Barclay says, look, you know, strictly speaking, there is no evidence for anything beyond our experience. And that means there's no evidence for there being an external world distinct from our experience. And so this cup for Barclay, uh, all that we can say is that it's a cup idea, right? Um, um, the notion that there's a cup in the world beyond the idea is something that we can't know. Uh, uh, uh. And, and that's actually something that, that, that Hume actually shows. Um, I actually think Hume, you know, there was a revolution in Hume scholarship that happened in the mid-20th century, a man named Norman Kemp Smith, um, who basically reconceived Hume not as an empiricist but as a naturalist. And I'm sure we'll get into that later, um, the sense in which his philosophy is naturalistic. Well, they're related. They're obviously related because, I mean, when you think of a naturalistic worldview, you think of a scientific worldview. Of course, Hume is writing in the 18th century before right. modern science, as we think of it, has really very fully developed. But, but when you think of a naturalistic worldview, think of a scientific worldview, you think of a worldview that demands evidence, which is what an empiricist is also insisting on... That's right. But the irony with Hume, it seems to me, is what you alluded to when you talked about Barclay, is Hume, in, think, in kind of thinking about evidence, spends so much time emphasizing the limits of our ability to really know things about evidence and to, yep. to know about our perceptions and the relationship among our perceptions that, that yeah, he's somewhere in the direction of, of a Barclay who's kind of saying, for all we know, the world doesn't exist. Really, Hume and Barclay represent different reactions to the same problem. And what the, the, and that problem is, is that evidence only gets you so far and doesn't get you as far as you, as you would have thought it would have. Um, and we, we could talk in detail when we talk specifically about his skepticism about causality or about induction or whatever – Evidence doesn't get you nearly as far as you think it would. And so then, then the question is, well, what should our attitude be upon that beyond which the evidence goes? And Barclay's reaction is very strict. You know, we, we say nothing about it. We, don't, we, can't, we can't commit to it. Hume's answer is a lot more subtle. Um, and he's a naturalist in the sense that he thinks that beyond a certain point, we can't give justifications for the beliefs we hold. All we can do is give psychological accounts of why we hold them. Um, and so once you reach the limit of what evidence can tell you about causality, everything else we have to say about causality, really all we can do is talk about human psychology. Um, beyond that, however, Hume also was of the view that it's pointless to try and live out the kind of view that Barclay lives out. In other words... At the end of the day, Hume says, yes, the evidence only goes so far, we can only rationally prove so much, but at the end of the day, you simply believe anyway and you go about your business. He's got this wonderful line about, you know, you leave the study, you go play a game of backhand and you walk outside and the skeptical doubts evaporate, even though they haven't been solved. Whereas Barclay wants to say, Barclay in that sense is almost more like a Pyrrhonist, like, like a Pyrrhonic skeptic uh, from ancient Greece, who if there's no evidence, you suspend belief, Right. Hume, Hume says Hume, Hume says this is this is in violation of our nature. We can't. We don't live like this. Of course, this. You, you don't have to believe. And, and by the way, one one interesting uh, kind of uh, connection to modern to recent popular philosophical discourse. There's a lot of talk about us being in a simulation, right? These days, Elon yeah. Musk says he's pretty sure this is not base reality. We're in a simulation. He's pretty sure. Well, actually, he says he's overwhelming. He says, I think Elon Musk said he thinks the chances that we're in base reality as opposed to being a simulation created by somebody who either is themselves in a simulation or is in base reality. 
is like one in a billion. He's sure. But there were there was this actual philosopher, Nick Bostrom, right, who did a paper uh, arguing that there's there's reason to believe the chances are we're in a simulation. But anyway, the point the point I was going to make was, um, you know, you said in the end of the day we believe it's real and we go out and do it. But you know, in a certain sense, what is it? You, you don't have to believe it's real to go out and do it because what is the practical difference between reality existing and not existing? Or to put it in terms of simulation, what's the difference between us being in a simulation and us not, you know, the whole point is the two experiences are exactly the same. Yeah. So which one you believe is the truth almost doesn't matter. You go about your business. Yeah, but Hume wants to make a stronger point than that. Okay. Hume wants to say we can't help but believe that. In other words, that's the whole point of the psychological account that he gives. Right. Once, the, once the rational account runs out, once the evidence runs out and we find out, well, all we've all we've shown and proven is constant conjunction. We don't have causality, right? Yeah. Um, all we have is one thing happening after another. Um, that's all we can prove. That's all the evidence shows. Hume thinks that we are by nature designed to believe, to, to go to go beyond that, um, and the same thing with the existence of the external world. So it may not matter as a theoretical point. It may make no difference to your behavior whether this is a cup idea or whether it's actually a cup. But Hume thinks. Nature has designed us to think it's a cup, right. right? not a cup idea. He thinks that is artificial, not sustainable. And later philosophers who pick up from Hume's tradition, especially in the Scottish naturalist tradition, I'm thinking specifically of Thomas Reed, um, make a lot of hay of this idea that it's really not possible to believe that, um, things, don't really, that things don't really exist outside of our minds. Yeah. And so um, Hume, would, Hume would want to say that, Barclay may say he thinks that, but that he doesn't really, <laughs> um, and that he couldn't. Now, you've mentioned causality a couple of times, so let's, let's uh, kind of uh, maybe flesh this out a little for people who've never heard the argument. As I understand Hume, this variant of his skepticism is to say, look, you know, I know it's common to talk as if when the billiard ball hits the other billiard ball, it causes that billiard ball to move. But the fact is, all we know for sure is that every time we've seen a billiard ball hit another billiard ball in that manner, we have then seen the billiard ball move. That doesn't establish a, a relationship like what we really mean by causality. I mean, it could be that the world is just a movie. When you see a movie, you might see a billiard ball in a movie hit another billiard ball and the thing moves. But if you think about the way movies are made, you know there's no causality there. It's just a sequence of images that were already printed on the film, right? So, um, and, and, and I think there, maybe it does matter what you believe because if you, if you doubt causality enough, then one direction to go in is, well, then it's all, it's all just a movie. It's predetermined. I have no effect on it. You could go in that direction. And that would matter. I mean, it, I, I think he's right that, that we, by nature, believe in the efficacy of causal intervention, right? I mean, it's very much related to the belief in free will. Yeah, well, well Hume, Hume, Hume certainly, you know, I want to say that Hume believes in causality. But what his account of what causality consists of is not what you would, is not what you would normally think. And so, I mean... It, all of the skeptic, everything that Hume is skeptical about, he's skeptical about because of a basic framework that he that he operates in. And so, this framework is that everything that we can know falls into one of two categories: either what he calls matters of fact or relations of ideas. Right. And so, matters of fact are normal empirical uh, uh, things. You know, uh, the tree is out there. The squirrel is brown. Right. Right? Or squirrels are warm-blooded. Um, um, these are all matters of fact, and they're and they're and they're things that we know on the basis of experience, on the basis of observation. Mm -hmm. Relations of ideas are things that we know not on the basis of any experience, but on the basis of simply examining uh, the meanings of words. Um, so this is logic. This is the realm of logic. Logic and, 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 for Hume, mathematics. Okay, Now, Kant is going to problematize that later. So, for example, uh, I know that squares are rectangles. right? But that's not 
a matter of fact, that's a relation of ideas because a square is a kind of rectangle, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, so as Kant would say later in an analytic statement, the meaning of the, um, uh, the meaning of the predicate is already contained within the meaning of the subject. Right. So, right. so Kant is the one who makes the distinction between analytic and synthetic and those right. kind of roughly correspond to Hume's distinction, it, but not it, entirely. It does correspond to it. Um, um, it corresponds to it well enough for the purposes of right. our conversation. So analytic uh, is like the relationship among ideas right. and synthetic right. is like statements about the, real, the reality we perceive. That's right. And one of the things to notice is that, anal- that relations of ideas, the type of knowledge that this consists of is largely is non-substantial, right? Um, it's, th- these, are t- these are essentially tautologies or, or logical truths. Um, they, they don't represent any new knowledge uh, when, when you know something like this. Um, and, and this is important simply because uh, in order to understand the analysis. So taking that framework, let's look at causality. Hume says, and the billiard ball example is fine. So um, we want to say that the cue ball hitting the eight ball made the, the, the eight ball move, right? Um, where what we mean by made it move is that there's some what Hume calls necessary connection between the hitting and the moving, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Hume then says, well, okay, well, let's look at it. Let's see where this idea of necessary connection comes from. And he says, well, when I look at it, what all that I, strictly speaking, observe is one event followed by another. Mm-hmm. The first event is the pool ball hitting the eight ball, and the second event is the eight ball moving. He says, nowhere do I actually observe the necessary connection. I simply observe the sequence of events. He says, so it's not a matter of fact, the knowledge of necessary belief and necessary connection. Says, but it's also not a relation of ideas. It doesn't logically follow from a ball, from the, it doesn't, the, the statement, the eight ball move does not logically follow from the statement, the cue ball hit it, right? And so it's not a relation of ideas either. And so Hume then, then concludes that the belief in causality, if what you mean is necessary connection, is not is not verifiable. It cannot be it cannot be justified by any rational means. So then he tells, but he doesn't stop there. If he'd stop there, then he would just be a garden variety skeptic. But what does he do? He then goes on to explain where the perception of necessity comes from, and he says that the perception of necessity comes from a habit that's developed in the mind as a result of seeing this constant conjunction over and over again. To where next time when we see the eight, the cue ball hit the eight ball, we're already expecting the eight ball to move afterwards. We mistake that expectation for necessity, a necessary relation between the events, and we project it into the events. Mm-hmm. So Hume thinks there is causality, but what causality is is constant conjunction plus psychological expectation, right? If what you mean is necessary connection. There ain't no much such thing in the world. There's just events following other events. Now, but but to be clear, there could be such a thing in the world, right? But it's just beyond the powers of our minds to state it with 100% confidence. Because because we have never seen all the possible cases, right? Who yeah, knows? But, Tomorrow the billiard ball will hit the other billiard ball and it won't move. Ah, okay, well, that's... Now, there you're getting into a different question, and that's the question of induction, right? Right. And that he also has a story about. He okay. also believes that the, that that so an induction is a belief um, in some future event based on uh, events in the past, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, yes, part of what happens is when I see the 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 correlation, when I see the constant conjunction over and over again, I develop an expectation that then leads me to inductively infer that it's going to happen again next time. But Hume wants to say the same thing about inductive inference. He wants to say, this is not, there's no evidence for this either. We simply see a lot of things happen over and over and over again. And thus we build in ourselves up a kind of psychological expectation or habit. He says the only way that you can actually get a justification of induction is if you assume that the future will always be like the past. Right. Right. But of course... That just is what we're trying to justify, right? The belief that the future will be like the past. In other words, 
You couldn't justify that inductively because we're trying to justify well, induction. But you can show empirically that in the past, the future has tended to be like the past in certain respects. You can show that, right. But what you can never show is that it will continue on that way forever. No, you can't. But it, but what's interesting, okay, so you're saying that's really a separate matter from the skepticism about causality that you were describing earlier. Right. The, the initial skepticism, even if you had observed all the cases of conjunction between two events that there have been and will ever be somehow magically. You've seen them all. It's always held that there's this conjunction. You're still not justified in right. in saying one caused the other in the conventional sense of the term causality. Right, because you never actually observe... The causality itself. It's like, what making, do we mean? The right. making. You only observe the first event and the second event. You yeah. never observe the connection between well, you know, them. You know what this reminds me of a little is is just the observation that, like, we talk about scientific laws... But we never talk about the mechanism for enforcing them, you know? It's like, usually when we use the word law, we know why there is compliance with the law. When we talk about law with individual people, we know that, like, look, if people don't obey the law, they go to jail. That's why most people obey the law. There's a mechanism enforcing compliance. When you use the word law in the scientific sense, it's... I mean, I think you would be sympathetic to what I'm saying, right? Is Is like... We forget to ask, well, what makes this happen? I mean, if we knew what makes right. the regularity happen, then would he say, then we know what causality Look, there's is. No, Hume, there's no reason why Hume should object to statistical predictions, right? So in other words, if on the basis of this observed constant conjunction, right, I say the next time somebody hits a cue ball against an eight ball, there's a high probability that the eight ball is going to move. Hume has no objection to that kind of reasoning, right? And, and that is supported by the evidence. But what Hume wants to say is that our ordinary notion of causality, where what we mean isn't just one thing happening after another, but rather something making something happen. Right. That's what he thinks we don't have any, any, any rational justification for believing. Right, and, and my point is kind of, in fact, when you think about it, it's hard to imagine what such knowledge would be like. What would, what would a thing be like that makes it happen? What right. would a thing be like that enforces the laws right. of science? Right. And, and, and it's like, yeah, so really, yeah, all we know is this one thing keeps following the other thing. Right, every right. Time. And, and, you know, and you observe it a lot, and you, know, you, you attach a high probability. Now, the question about you know, whether even... There's a problem with the the the, the, the sort of application of probability uh, um, because of the problem of induction. You know, is is something that you know that that one might want to press. You know, might want to say, look, you know, um, unless I can assume that the future will be the, like the past, unless I assume that nature is uniform, I really can't make a statistical uh, 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 prediction because. Um, there literally is no reason to think that the next time it's going to happen again, right? Um, um, Hume, 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 Hume argues that, that the belief that nature is uniform is at the heart of, 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 of inductive inference. Mm -hmm. uh, and, so, and so if you think that that's necessary, that you need to be able to demonstrate or justify the belief that nature is uniform in order to make inductive inferences, you might even be skeptical about probabilistic or statistical, uh, you know, statistical uh, uh, inferences. Okay. Let me ask you a question about um, metaphysics. When we emailed about what aspects of Hume's thought we might talk about, you mentioned metaphysics, and I don't really know anything uh, about his metaphysics, although some of the things we've said are relevant, I'm sure. But um, so let me, let me set up. So I'm, I'm very curious as to what you have to say his metaphysics were, um, but let me set it up this way um i uh you know kant you had a very interesting conversation about kant with uh david otlinger is that the way he pronounces his last yes name? so uh one thing i learned in that is that there's actually some controversy over what kant thought about a key issue i mean as i recall this is what i learned from and the key issue is i had always heard that kant said you know look there is uh Perceived reality. There's what we perceive. But beneath that and beyond the powers of our perception, there's a deeper reality, a thing in itself or a numinous thing or something. Uh, and we will never know 
what that is. And, and, and I now it turns out, again, I think there's more controversy about what his final views were on this matter. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I think what I just uh, described is the kind of uh, Cliff Notes version, as you, <laughs> you know, the, the most common Cliff Notes version of what I would take to be his metaphysics. Right. I mean, that's a metaphysical claim. Is that right? If if you interpret noumena a certain way, then that would be the metaphysics, right? I mean, the, the noumenal the, the noumenal realm would be the metaphysical dimension of of his of his philosophy. Okay, why don't you say then what you mean by metaphysical? It's it's a it's a word that uh, well, sometimes people use it dismissively to refer to just like woo stuff, you know, like Shirley MacLaine is getting all metaphysical, but there is a rigorous well, there is a serious yeah. philosophical uh, concept yeah. of metaphysics. Yeah. What's the thumbnail definition of what we mean by so metaphysics? This is, this is actually quite difficult to do. I mean, right. you know, um, traditionally the word metaphysics refers to the most basic fundamental structure of reality, right? So for someone like Aristotle, um, the book, The Metaphysics, is devoted to understanding what fundamentally subs- what the fundamental substance is. And the answer that he gives actually in, metaf- in the metaphysics is interesting because it, it changes his mind from what he says in his earlier works. Uh, in his earlier works, he says that particular things are the most basic fundamental things in the world. And then in the metaphysics, specifically in book Zeta, he changes his mind and says, no, actually, Plato was right all along and form is the most basic substance. Although he has a very different view of form than Plato does, mm-hmm. Plato thinks forms are transcendent and exist in a right. separate there, reality. There's this ideal version of a chair yeah. out there. Aristotle thinks of form as sort of the structure of things, right? The ways. So, so the, the, the the form would be um, the form is 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 um, imminent in in things rather than mm-hmm. uh, transcendent. So traditionally, the idea of metaphysics is that it's the study of the most basic fundamental aspects of reality. Um, but that that definition is sort of hard to sustain once you get to the through, once you get to the science of revolution, um, because certainly it would seem at least that fundamental physics is the most basic study of the nature of reality, and I I do think that metaphysics takes on a slightly different conception, and I think we can maybe actually tie Hume, Kant, and the logical the logical positivists together in telling this little this little story. Um, the logical so, positives being people who came later, came in the 20th century, and, 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 and basically insisted that the only valid kind of knowledge is science in a certain sense, right? It's claims that can be tested empirically is the only kind of claim worth even talking about. The logical positivists are essentially 20th century Humeans mm-hmm. who rejected the entire continental tradition that took off after Kant, right? Um, um, and I'll say something about that. I won't. I won't. I don't have to say very much to, 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 to sort of situate them. So, if you remember, I talked about relations of ideas and matters of fact. These exhaust the kind of knowledge we can have, according to Hume. So, we can either have mo- knowledge of essentially logical truths, or we can have knowledge that comes from that's grounded in experience. Now, Kant comes along and says, eh, "Don't know about that." First of all, Kant says. The truths of arithmetic are not relations of ideas. 7 plus 5 equals 12 is not analytic. Okay. Um, and secondly, Kant is not willing to give up the notions that Hume is willing to naturalize away. Notions like causality or no- notions like extendedness right, um, or distinct existence, separateness from us, right? Kant's not willing to naturalize those away. He thinks that those, those are fundamental and need to be somehow demonstrated. However, he agrees that they're not matters of fact and they're not relations of ideas. And so Kant introduces a third category of knowledge, which he calls the synthetic a priori. So this is knowledge that is not based in experience. It's independent of experience, but it's not tautological. It's substantial, right? Now, that seems to bring metaphysics back. Because if there is knowledge that doesn't come from experience but is substantial, that means that there must be a sort of level of reality that's knowable in this way. So are right? these these are like the notions of space and time? Right. Space, time, causality. Are, and causality, causality is one. Yes. Okay, so those are a priori in the sense that they don't 
come from experience, they are prerequisites for having in, in coherent experience. That's right. That's right. And, and that's what Kant calls what's called a transcendental argument. Mm-hmm. There has to be causality. There has to be ex- these things because otherwise the experience that we have would not be possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I, th- right. I think, by the way, I think evolutionary psychology, just in the most casual sense, bears him out, which is that, look, we evolved. Our brains evolved to deal uh, deal with the world. I mean, I think anybody who studied the brain would say, yeah, they are set up to uh, assimilate things in terms of space and time and probably to presuppose something like causality. Right, right. So, although Kant, of course, would not give any sort of evolutionary or naturalistic... No, all these guys came before Darwin. And he, but he gives us sort of what I call, like what I said, it was a transcendental account, sort of an account in terms of how they... How they're the ways in which they're necessary for the possibility of the experience we have. So that then opens up the room for metaphysics again, right? Metaphysics consists of synthetic a priori knowledge, right? Now, of course, the problem is, yeah, but how do you get it, right? Right? That led 19th century philosophers, a lot of them, into all sorts of very uh, speculative, hard to read. I mean, you know, this is where you get all of your. Your, your, your really tough early continental philosophy. Um, and you get to the 20th century, and it was the logical positivists who said, no, 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 we need to go back to Hume. But they did it even tougher than Hume. They didn't just say that matters of fact and relations of ideas are the only knowledge we can have. They said these are the only kinds of meaningful statements there are. Right. So in other words, it's not just a criterion of justification. It's a a linguistic criterion. Mm -hmm. And so any statement that's not empirically verifiable or a logical truth is literally meaningless. Like as if you and I just started making noises. Okay. So they thereby, the positivists in one swoop dispense of all metaphysics, all ethics, all normative value judgment type statements wind up being, uh, strictly speaking, meaningless on this view. Um, that's why you can have a book like A.J. Ayer's uh, Language, Truth, and Logic, which is sort of the manifesto of logical positivism. The book is like this big <laughs> because there's so little, right? Yeah. There's so little that, you know. And it will be the last p- philosophical book, right? Because from, right, now, right, from there right. on out, it's just science. That's right. Um, Wittgenstein famously in the Tractatus when he was still, at least according to some people, in that mood, mood said <laughs> everything that cannot be stated this uh, in this way can, literally cannot be said. Well, right, right? but that's, that's, <laughs> that's the utterance that is kind of famously ambiguous, right? And the logical right. positivist seized on it as meaning yes. what they meant, whereas right. Wittgenstein ultimately at least meant it more in the way a mystic would mean it. There's no point in talking about certain <laughs> things, but that doesn't that's mean right. they're not true. I think that's right. I think the logical positivist clearly mis- misunderstood him. Wittgenstein himself said that he- they misunderstood him. Wittgenstein famously rejected the introduction that Russell wrote for the Tractatus because Russell misunderstood him. So I'm, I'm agreeing with that entirely. I'm simply sort of, sort of trying to situate this arc, right? So metaphysics falls on hard times again once the positivists come along. The interesting thing is that, at least in the analytic tradition, because, you know, what I just des- described was uh, after Kant, there's a split. There's what's called the continental philosophers who take up the metaphysical side of Kant, if that's a correct reading of him. I personally don't think it is. Um, but they take up the metaphysical side of Kant. Um, the empiricists don't. People like John Stuart Mill stay empiricists through the 19th century. The 20th century, this split continues to where you have two basically two tracks. You have analytic philosophers who are basically Humeans and continental philosophers who are in most largely neo-Kantians, right? Um, it isn't until the publication of Saul Kripke's book, Naming and Necessity, <laughs> in the 19, I think 1978 or 9, that metaphysics gets, gets back into analytic philosophy again. And maybe in another dialogue we could talk about Kripke because he's awfully interesting. He's very important. Um, and um, he is the way that metaphysics got back into analytic philosophy, but it was basically gone. Now we haven't we haven't actually defined analytic philosophy, and, and it may it's be a little. Tr- it's I, it's this it's I'm defining it now as 
the people who stuck with Hume and rejected the metaphysical reading of Kant. That's why that that's that that's how I'm going to characterize them, with, so that we okay. don't go off into a long. Okay, but it, but it may be a little confusing for people because we distinguish between analytic truths and synthetic truths, and I guess this is related, but it's not. It's not the same, right? I mean, I mean, I don't it, 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 know why they're called analytic philosophers. I think it's partly because they thought that the primary job of philosophy was logical analysis uh, and, and analysis and analysis of the meaning of utterances, right? Analysis right. of language. I mean, That's I remember right. at the end of uh, a history of Western philosophy, Bertrand Russell, in doing a little advertisement, I think, for analytic philosophy, says, "Now there are some of us who, true, we don't make the grand claims that Hegel and all these guys I just talked about made, but." We think, you know, we're focusing on smaller questions about the meaning of things, but but we think that what we do think we know, we really know. They're smaller issues, but we think we can really get a, a grip yeah. on them. So so I, I guess so you're saying that is somewhat in the tradition of Hume's empiricism in the sense of eschewing claims that are hard to things that are hard to talk about. It's like focus on things you can really talk right. about, get clear right. on what you mean by the language. And 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 when and test them by the evidence. And the only people who are in the business of substantive knowledge are scientists. Okay. Right. This, other, this uh, according to logical positivism right. and and pretty much according to the analytic school. You're saying yes. Uh-huh. The only people in the business of of substantive knowledge are scientists. Um, what philosophers do is they do what's called conceptual analysis, and so they use the tools of logic and linguistics to analyze concepts and statements for the purposes of clarification, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, a, so a philosopher, a scientists go out and confirm hypotheses, but a philosopher might clarify what one means by confirm, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, half the philosophy of science is about what do you mean, what does confirm mean? What do we mean by confirm? What is it to confirm a, a, a hypothesis, right? Um, so they're not really in the business of... of, of of substantive knowledge, philosophy is in the business of of linguistic and conceptual housekeeping, so to speak. Right. Um, um, and the continental tradition doesn't accept this at all. I mean, the continental tradition has always thought that philosophy is also in the business of substantive knowledge, but that's because they accept they they come out of the idealistic tradition after Kant that takes Kant as being metaphysically inflationary. Rather than uh, rather than as, as metaphysically uh, very limiting, which is uh, how well, I see it. You're saying the continental and first we should say, okay, so we had this dichotomy at the beginning, empiricism, the empiricist versus the rationalist. Right. Now, if people were paying attention, they may have noticed the empiricists were either British, Irish, or English, Irish, or Scottish. And that's why it's called British empiricism. The uh, the rationalists were all living on the continent. The ones I think you named, and I don't think that's an accident, right? And and I that, think these philosophies do respect certain national temperaments and other deep things that I think are actually very interesting. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, there is something very British about 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 the the, the analytic tradition, um, um, yeah. and it's not until the 20th century that you have an offshoot of it in Europe. That's the Vienna Circle. Right, so they're the logical positivists. There you have you start having empiricist-minded philosophers in Germany uh, and Austria, um, but um, but uh, for, for the most part, it's a very Anglo-Saxon uh, a tradition. Right. Okay. So to get back to Hume's metaphysics, yeah. Yeah. the what, what so, so I, I think Hume doesn't think there is any metaphysics, right? Because that's what I was going to suspect right. is that he wouldn't. Although, I mean, on the one hand, I would think he would be sympathetic to that. Uh, Kantian claim I characterized like all we know is surface reality Hume's on board so far right all we know is that we have the the uh, perceptual experiences we have we don't know what lies beneath them but Kant seems more confident that something lies beneath them there's a there's a more fundamental reality and Hume is just agnostic yeah, but I see. I, I'm, I'm almost wondering. You know, that depends on the specific reading of Kant. I mean, that assumes that you take the noumena as a sort of a, a separate world, as opposed to the way I think the noumena should be taken. And Ottlinger, in our dialogue, said there's two ways you can look at the noumena. Right. Um, the noumena. The noumena aren't a separate thing, a set of things. They're simply the phenomena when one imagines them. Not from any perspective, in other words. In, in, in other words, 
Right. The, 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 the view from the view from nowhere. Right. The numen is what results when you artificially take the view from nowhere, which you can't really do. Right. That's why, in a sense, the numen are unknowable. It's not because they lie in some far reaches of of of, of, of the world that you can never reach, like Plato's forms. Rather, it's simply a matter of you know when we think of reality from no perspective, right? When, then, then, then what you're left with is a noumenon, right? Um, and that's not an object of knowledge. An object of knowledge is that which is understood from uh, from a perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Through the categories of the understanding right. and the categories right. uh, of the sensibility, um, um, and so you know, I, I I don't I don't take Kant idealistically. Um, um, and none, and none of the analytic philosophers do. So, so, you know, the way you're taught Kant even will be very different in an analytic program. Well, well, this is what I was saying. I learned from listening to your conversation with David Ottlinger is, is, you know, the, the view I presented of Kant is the, I think, uh, fairly commonly presented when I'm not sure, but it's the one I had going into that. Now I realize there, there's a dispute over how you should take Kant's metaphysics but in any event i i would think that hume i i would have suspected what you said which is hume basically doesn't have a metaphysics because he less ambiguously than kant just wants to stop at the surface appearance all we know is there's a surface appearance who knows what could be underneath it computer code could be underneath it if we're in the simulation but we just don't know and that's all you can say well he but he wants to he doesn't, but he doesn't stop with the surface appearances. He does give psychological accounts of the reasons for our believing beyond the appearances. In other words, he does want to account for why we believe beyond the beyond the appearances. Yeah. He just doesn't think that that can right. be a rational story. That's going to be an essentially a mechanistic story. Right. It's going to be a story about how the human mind works. Right. And his and his is basically a, a crudely associationist psychology. Right. So we connect things together that look the same or that happen close to each other or that happen one after the other in time. or And then that causes us, in a sense, to make judgments beyond what the evidence, strictly speaking, can justify. Right? And so he's not, it's not that he doesn't want to go beyond the appearances. It's just that he doesn't think that beyond what is experienced – Anything else can be said about the world. At that point, all that we can do is say things about ourselves, right? right? And how we perceive the world. I actually think in a lot of ways, human content aren't necessarily that far apart. Um, but it's rather more of rather a matter of emphasis and a matter of, of um, 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 you but know. See, yeah. but see, one reason I, I had taken, I had always thought that Kant's metaphysics, as I described it, was a reflection of his, at some level, wanting to be religious, you know, much more than Hume seems to want to be religious. Hume doesn't want to be religious. Right. And, and, <laughs> and, and that's why I, 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 but, but I don't know where I got that idea that Kant, well, certainly it's the case. I'm sure that Kant, Kant comes from a pie, from a pie, from a pietist family. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so he comes from a pretty rigorously, uh, Protestant, um, 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 background. And there have been a lot of books re- written, lately about Kant's pietism precisely because people are now starting to wonder how much of his philosophy comes. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the ethics and Kant's ethics that sounds to me a lot like St. Paul. You know, what's funny. You know, what just occurred to me that is funny is that generally when you hear this simulation scenario, like we're in a simulation, you take that as kind of uh, minimizing the inherent meaning of like, oh, it's just a simulation. This is just a giant simulation. And yet, in a certain sense, it complies more with this, what I'm calling the kind of more common interpretation of Kant, <laughs> because it does say there's something down there that we can't see. It's the computer code. It is it is underlying this reality. There is a thing in itself. There is a, something noumenal right. that we can't perceive. That, in the context of Kant, is an assertion that's taken to to be less in the way to do less in the way of minimizing reality. Right? That's taken as being more compatible with the view that there's some deep meaning in reality, whereas Hume is is taken to be uh, less so, and the simulation is taken to be least so of all. And yet, what I'm saying is, the simulation, you know, 
that there's arguing that the simulation scenario posits something deep that we cannot apprehend, if nothing else. I yeah. mean, not to mention the fact that there, that there's presumably in some sense a purpose. I guess there's some reason they started the simulation, you know. But yeah. anyway. I guess, look, this really does depend on how you read the noumenon in Kant. Um, I'm inclined to read it in, in, in yeah, the... Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm trying to qualify every characterization yeah. I make yeah. of Kant and, that way. I'm talking about the one characterization. And I guess I just, I personally, and then maybe this, this may be because of my training, I think it also has to do with my background... Uh, being Jewish, and we've talked about this. Um, I don't find the there must be the thing underneath very compelling. Um, 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 but that's partly because you know. I guess why I'm, is that? Why is that, uh, why is that a Jewish view? I, I would think. Oh, because because of the, because we talked about this in the past that um, in Judaism there's a strong discouragement of me- metaphysical and theological speculation. That's why. Judaism doesn't have anything like the theological tradition that Christianity has. Well, sure, Judaism but, is a pots and pans religion. Right, but it started out with a, with a theology, and I would think that, in general, a worldview that is starts out as deeply and explicitly theological, that then adapts to modernity, yeah. might want to hang on to something, you know, like uh, something noumenal, right? I mean, I, it just seems to me that would be a natural adaptation. Uh, well, look, certainly... Certainly, if you're talking about the religion of the ancient Hebrews, that is certainly the case. But I would maintain that... Well, the ancient Hebrews didn't just settle for the numinous. I mean, they had an actual anthropomorphic right. they had god. They with God in it, right? Right. <laughs> um, but, but I would argue that the relationship between rabbinical Judaism and the Judaism of the Hebrews is very, very... Uh, is not nearly as tight as people want to think. And what we call Judaism today is about 95% rabbinical. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so all the sort of habits of mind and the thing you associate with Jewish ways of thinking are rabbinical in nature and not, uh, and not, um, but, but, but it just, you know, it goes to the, I just, Kant says to so Hume, Hume does his thing, his skepticism. Kant writes the critique of pure reason. Then he writes the prolegomena. And in the prolegomena, Kant says, it's a scandal that the existence of the external world has not been proven. And I take that as, perfectly exhibiting the difference between Hume and Kant. Kant thinks it's a scandal and is going to rack his mind and write giant treatises until he figures it out. Hume says, obsessing over such things is unhealthy and morbid, and you ought to go out for a walk, right? <laughs> when you start thinking that way, it's the time to stop, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that's perfectly encapsulates the difference between the two. I don't think it means that Hume is superficial. Um, I do think it has something to, somewhat to do with temperaments, national temperaments. Um, it's not a, an accident that all the, a lot of the Scottish philosophers have this sort of attitude, um, and a lot of the German ones have Kant sort of attitude. Um, um, they write gigantic operas. You froze for a second there. Yeah, and you were the one talking, so maybe you should repeat okay. what you said. It was something about operas, right? Yeah, I said the Germans also they write giant operas and, right. and they write giant treatises of philosophy, you know. Right, and they have sweeping <laughs> views of history like Hegel and and That's so right. on. And yeah. you know, I mean, Hume is, I think, rightly lauded for the sheer clarity of his prose, certainly compared to reading Kant. Now, in fairness to Kant, we're reading him in translation. You and I are. That's Although one the thing. Germans also said he. I mean, I think it was. I want to say it was. Heinrich Heine, I'm not sure, one of the German writers said that Kant had forever uh, shamed the German language. <laughs> uh, he was considered a terrible writer in German also. Is that true? Um, yeah. I, 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 was, I was thinking it might be partly just that, you know, a skeptical, empirical emphasis like Hume's is more amenable to clear articulation because he's... Well, that's for sure, yes. Right. Yes, absolutely. But look, there are wonderful German writers, even in translation. Nietzsche is wonderful, even in translation. Schopenhauer is wonderful, even in translation. Kant is not wonderful in any... I mean, it's just... Kant and Hegel both yeah. are just horrible, horrible uh, writers. And part of it is because of all this invented terminology that's just, you know, never really very well explained. and never. You're right, though, to say about Hume, and I want to say this for the audience. Um, a layperson can pick up Hume and read it. Mm-hmm. You really can. I mean, and it's, it's slightly the- archaic in its in its feel. It's old, you know. It's centuries ago. There yeah, were but it's super long not- sentences, lots of commas, but still. 
Yeah. I'm going to, when I send you links, Bob, I'm going to send you links to some nice online editions of the Humean uh, works because there's really a, a, some very nice ones that are very good and, 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 and uh, nice interfaces and uh, I think even with annotation notes in the, in the margins and stuff. And so, uh, so people can uh, check them out if they want. Okay, good. Well, we may have, uh, we've covered a lot of ground and we're at what, 50 minutes. So I don't know how much. Uh... Well, listen, if you want to do another topic, you want to do the ethics, you wanted to talk about reason and the passions. We could do that in 15 minutes. Yeah, okay. We can. Um... Or well, we reason can the, reason and the passions when we do it. Uh, I might want to spend more than 15 minutes on. If okay. there's something you want to say about the ethics, his uh, his ethics, because Kant's ethics are very well known. The categorical imperative, which, well, Listen, we can there. But, 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 we can but, do a separate one on Hume's ethics if you want, because we basically just did one on Hume's epistemology, and we okay. kind of situated it. And he's really most famous for his for his epistemology. And his ethics. And so if you want to do a separate one on Hume's ethics... His ideas about the connection between reason and the passions or reason and feelings uh, interestingly kind of overlap the two categories in a certain way. It's partly an account of how the mind works, and, and yeah. but it has ethical implications. So yeah, maybe we should stop here. And yeah, then do, do a separate one on the ethics. A separate and, one and give it its due. And, and I think like this one, if we talk about Hume's ethics, we're going to wind up pulling other stuff in. Right. We're going to wind up talking about Aristotle. We're going to wind up talking about Kant. Right. We're going to wind up talking about Mill. And so I think we'll have enough material there to do another hour right. um, on that topic. So I'm happy to, I'm happy to stop now and, and, and do Hume's ethics in a separate dialogue. Okay, so we're leaving them on the edge of their seats, which is exactly how you want to leave them. <laughs> <laughs> the ones who are still here. The, the ones who are still in the theater, the three, the three still occupied seats fe feature people on the on the edges of them. Uh, okay, well, that was that was a lot of fun. So we're gonna we'll do this again. Yeah, thank you very much, and we'll we'll do this again soon. Thank you. All right, bye bye. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.